Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Lost in Science for another week where it's half an hour on your radio of pure, unadulterated science. And we have some very fun and interesting things happening today. First of all, though, we have a special guest in the studio, science communicator and meteorologist extraordinaire, Nate. Hello. (laughs) Hi, how are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. Thanks so much for coming all the way from bright-skied but very cold Canberra to join us today. Oh, that's not a problem. I'm very, very happy to be back in Melbourne where I first trained to be a meteorologist and I got all of the weather already today. So I'm very happy. (laughs) Melbourne must be a little bit like a homecoming for meteorologists because... As they say, it is four seasons in one day. Yep, it absolutely is. And, and yeah, we learn a lot here. Melbourne's got some really cool weather and stuff going on as well. So it's not only the place that we love to be, it's also a place we love to look at. Mm. Okay, well, we're going to be talking a little bit later about some interesting research that's come out recently about climate change. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. There were two papers released just, just over a week ago now. Mm. And, um, yeah, some really interesting stuff to talk about. Awesome. And Chris... Hello. Hi. How are you? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm well. That's I'm good. really well. Enough pleasantries. Enough chit chat. Yeah. What do you got for us today? I am going to be continuing my rabbiting on about like medical research and stuff like that. And I'm looking at randomised controlled trials, which are a major backbone of how we know what's good for us and what's not good for us. So last week it was statistical significance. Yes. This week it is randomised trials. And it's just not. Random that I've chosen this is because there was a paper published in the New England <laughs> Journal of Medicine uh, recently that was looking, evaluating the state of randomised controlled trials and attitudes to them. So, yeah, having a bit of a look at that and, you know, what some of the issues may be and whether they're any good or not. I'm looking forward to it. I bet you are. Stu, what have you got for us today? Ah, uh, well, speaking of uh, medical science, I'm going to be looking at a very commonly used medical drug, which is also used for other things which aren't medical, but uh, I'm looking at morphine. What is morphine? And also, does it actually work as well as we think? Because there's new evidence that says maybe it doesn't. Oh. So I'm a meteorologist and an oceanographer, which means that I predict the weather and, and the equivalent in the ocean as well. Um, there's, there's ocean weather? Yeah, there is, actually. The exact same weather you get in the air, you get in the ocean, like cold fronts and, and, and like tornadoes equivalents and stuff like that. It's I just, never uh, knew that. Yeah, it's just a lot slower. So the, <laughs> the ocean is exactly like air. It's just really, really thick. But there's, you know, different temperatures like in different areas. So, yeah, it has... It doesn't have clouds and thunderstorms and mm, stuff. And snow and whatnot. No, not, not, <laughs> not in the ocean. But, um, but, but it has all of the same kind of masses of moving things of similar temperature and different gradients and yeah, much, much the same as, as, as atmospheric weather. So yeah, it's really interesting. And, and, and I obviously can't talk enough about the atmosphere. I love it and I love weather. And that's why today I've got a two-part story uh, 
looking at two very different new pieces of climate research. And I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. But I thought uh, before I get into it, it might be a good idea to clarify some things about the weather and climate. Oh, yeah. Always good to clarify. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, mostly weather and climate aren't the same thing. Yeah. That's, I mean, people have told me that before, but I've never fully, you know, understood why. Yeah. Well, it's, it's really easy not to like appreciate the difference because weather is what's happening outside right now. So when you look out the window and it's rainy or it's sunny, like that's weather. Right. It's local. Yeah. And it's, and it's what's happening now. now. Okay. Climate is what's happening over a larger period of time. So we normally consider a 30 year period and it's mm. the averages over that time. Mm-hmm. So the weather you're experiencing can be very different from the climate of the area you're in. Mm. You know, so say you're in a desert, hot and dry, you can still have a thunderstorm and it can still hail or it could still get cold, but that's, doesn't change the climate of the desert, which is hot and dry. Right. So you can have variability from the climate created by the weather. And because of that, you can't blame a hot day on global warming. Or you can't say the global warming isn't real just because it's chilly outside, Mm -hmm. right? So there's seasonal differences, there's annual differences, there's differences uh, day to day, which vary from the overall average climate. Yeah. Right. So with that down, the... Two bits of news I've got for you. Are you going to give us the good news or the bad news first? I think I think we'll start with bad news. Okay, I but, think th- I think that's a good approach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let, let me set the stage a little bit for you. So um, we all know that the world has been trying to agree uh, on cutting climate emissions in order to limit global warming. Uh, in the most recent negotiations at the Paris conference that happened in December mm. in 2015, uh, representatives from 195 countries discussed what they could do after 2020 in order to reduce the effects of climate change. So specifically, the negotiations revolved around keeping warming to no more than one and a half degrees Celsius. In April, 177 states and the European Union are now signatories to the Paris Agreement. So those countries have submitted their plans for reducing carbon emissions, and this unfortunately, Mm. is where the bad news is. New research by an Austrian team published in Nature has found that the bids will likely result in a warming between 2.6 and 3.1 degrees Celsius by the year 2100. So, yeah, way beyond what we were hoping to achieve. Yeah. Uh, And so a lot more work is going to be required in order to keep those temperature rises below 1.5 degrees Celsius. So that's just with the current commitments of those 177 countries. Yeah. Oh, it's 177 and the EU. So it's 178 in total at the moment. Um, But yeah, yeah. Even with their really increased uh, rates of reduction. And that's assuming that they all do what they say they're going to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's some other problems as well. Those, Those countries also don't... Uh, represent some of the biggest contributors like the airline industry generally. Mm. So mm. depending on what they do and shipping as well, they will also have a great impact on, on what's going on. So um, back in April, Gavin Schmidt, the, the head of NASA's Goddard Institute of Space Studies, predicted that the average global temperature this year will end up being more than one degree above pre-industrial le- levels. So already mm. we're seeing one degree of warming. And we may see temperatures hit the one and a half degree Celsius mark before 2020. So before the Paris stuff even comes in, we might already be at that one and a half degree Celsius increase. So unfortunately, things aren't looking all that good. And the problem with hitting that one and a half degrees Celsius so soon at the Paris talks, originally they were going to limit it to two degrees Celsius, but uh, some of the countries uh, rallied to 
ask for for it to be one and a half degrees because at one and a half degrees Celsius, some of those really low lying countries, especially the island nations, like a lot of Pacific island nations, mm. are going to be underwater. Mm. Like their their lives and their homes will be completely destroyed. Their whole country is horrible. Like they just will cease to exist. Like the effect on humans is huge. But, you know, there's also ocean acidification and changes to weather as well uh, with more extreme events and, uh, you know, there'll be biodiversity loss. There's a whole bunch of horrible stuff. But it's not all doom and gloom. Okay, not yet. The Paris Agreement does require that its signatories continue to increase the rate of emissions reduction after 2030. So Mm -hmm. we're going to start in 2020 and from 2030 onwards, you've got to get better and better and better, faster and faster and faster. Yeah. So hopefully there's a chance we might still be able to rein everything in. It's just a hell of a lot of work. But we've, we've been here before. So this is my second news item. We've seen that humans can significantly change the atmosphere and we can also work together to fix global problems. A research article published in Science last week has found that the hole in the ozone layer is actually healing. Amazing. So yeah. that's the actual word they use as well, healing. I love mm. it. So the hole in the ozone layer was created by the emission of chlorofluorocarbons at the Earth's surface that then were taken up into the stratosphere by winds. Um, and there, the UV that hits the atmosphere broke apart those chemicals and left chlorine around. And the chlorine can react with ozone and remove it, like just destroy mm. it. And we needed that ozone to oh, keep yeah. out the radiation. Since they stopped the production of CFCs, first they want to see the rate of the hole's growth slowing down mm-hmm. and then seeing it stabilizing. So that's kind of point one and point two that we were looking for. And we've seen that happen. And now we're actually seeing the hole start to shrink, which is really great. So the team was led by Professor Susan Solomon of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And uh, they looked at the atmospheric data collected from 2000 to 2015. And except for some periods of high volcanic activity, the ozone layer is actually on the mend. It's, it's very important since it helps to protect us from the UV. Um, and if everything goes well, it looks like the hole might actually be completely healed by mid-century. So that's great news. That is great news. We might be waist deep in water by then. But... <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, I shouldn't laugh. I hope not, but, but we'll, we'll see what happens. But, um, but looks, at least we won't be getting those UVB rays. There's that. There's that. <laughs> but so overall, what, what I'm trying to get at here is, is both of these pieces of research were released on the same day. Mm-hmm. And uh, they both involve the atmosphere and they both involve uh, things that humans have done. And one of them shows us that we're not doing enough to stop our problem. And the second one shows us that if we work together and work together hard enough, we can actually fix it. You know, we are really, really good when we are working together with one unified sort of thrust. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's what I'm hoping that we can take away from here. I'd like if we move quickly and aggressively, I don't think that all hope is lost just yet. We've just got to all get on board. Okay, you are listening to Lost in Science. Now, a few weeks ago, there was an article published in the New England Journal of Medicine called Assessing the Gold Standard, Lessons from the History of Randomized Controlled Trials. As I said in the introduction, randomized controlled trials are kind of the backbone of modern medicine. So I thought it's worth having a look at that. So randomized controlled trials are a type of medical clinical trial, and um, they have been around a long time. 
Um, controversially, I'm going, to, I'm going to quote something here. This is actually from Ben Goldacre, author of Bad Science and Bad Pharma, points us out that one of the first recorded clinical trials is actually in the Bible of all places. What? Yes. The prophet Daniel, he challenged King Nebuchadnezzar <laughs> that he and his mates could stay healthier eating vegetables compared with the king's men eating rich royal food. Now, this is presumably to demonstrate like the power of divine intervention or something like that. But um, yeah, look, it is interesting that this is very first recorded clinical trial was just basically proving that vegetables are good for you. But anyway, yeah, as you probably spotted, this wasn't a uh, kind of the gold standard kind of trial that we use today because it wasn't random, obviously. You know, the, the participants and which what they were, intervention they were getting was decided arbitrarily. Mm. And it wasn't blinded as well. So blinding, what does that mean? You can't see. <laughs> that's correct. That's correct. You also don't know which drug who's getting or what, what, what you've yeah, been yeah. given. Yeah, it's it's not so much what the um the yeah you ideally want to blind the patient so that we're well, not actually literally blind them, but have them not aware <laughs> what treatment they're getting. That's particularly the case if you're looking at sort of subjective measures like pain and stuff like that. But you particularly don't want the um, people giving the treatment to know what they're giving. Right, and that's the double blind. That's Yeah, that's for the double blind. And ideally you want to be triple blind where the people actually analysing results also don't know who's had what because, you know, you can get some little dodgy things to being when people kind of know who should be getting a better result. Again, particularly if it's a subjective kind of measure. So, yeah, you basically try and make it as, as blinded as possible. Blind as possible. That's right. Now, the first modern randomised control trial was published in 18, sorry, 1948 by Austin Bradford Hill, among others, and this basically set the standard for what we do today. Uh, people mm-hmm. objected to it then on certain ideas, and the objections are much the same kind of objections that you will hear about them today, which are, you know, people don't like it. They'll say that some people are missing out on the treatment, um, mm. They also say that this is, you know, it's, it's easy to do for something like a, a drug, but it's very hard to do for things like surgery or psychotherapy or the newer kind of personalised medicine. And the other problem is that they can take a long time to do a randomised controlled trial, particularly if you're looking at outcomes that may take um, a few years to to emerge. Whereas, you know, science, people are discovering new things all the time. Well, certainly, for, especially uh, people have issues with it because of negative side effects that may take a long time to appear as well. Yeah, that's that's right. So you, well, you might get you might get a good result from the treatment, but then two years down the track, something goes wrong, which you didn't account for. Well, the treatments can have a long time to um to show up as well. And I'll give you an example of this. This is um uh this is brought up in this New England Journal of Medicine paper. Uh, in two thousand seven, there was a study published on coronary angioplasty. Now, this is where they use a thing called a stent, which is kind of just a metal cage, to open up and unblock the arteries that supply the heart muscles. Now, this paper it was a fairly big paper. It had dozens of authors. It involved over 2,000 patients, and they followed them up over seven years to see who died and who didn't die. Now, this was a surgical technique that they were looking at. So right from the start, there were surgeons saying, you know, look, we know what we're doing. Why would you want to test this? I mean, we can see we are opening the artery. So why would you question it? And why would you deny the patients in the control arm this this life-saving surgery? But the in the study, they didn't actually give the control group nothing at all. They gave them certain drugs, and they also gave them lifestyle interventions. So things like you know telling them to eat their vegetables, as we've established, is fairly important. Uh, the other patients got all that plus the surgery as well. So you know that's one way to make sure you're not totally disavenging the control group. And they chose an objective outcome for this, which was the life or death of the patients. So they didn't have to worry about trying to fool the patients with um, sham surgery, which sometimes you have to do in these things where you want to see if something works or not. You pretend to operate on them. What? Sham surgery is a thing? It is a thing, yeah. If you want to see whether a surgical technique works, and it is, again, for, say, a subjective outcome, like something like pain or something like that, then 
you know, you've got to see, you've got to pretend to do it so people don't aren't just thinking they've gotten the surgery. Do you still make the incision and then no, just you just sort knock of, them out? You oh, just knock them out. Sometimes they, they do. Up, sometimes they do make the incisions. Yeah, because you know there is that surgery was so good. I didn't even get a scar. <laughs> anyway, so what they found with with this this coronary angioplasty, they found that the operation didn't actually stop patients dying. It didn't have any difference on on who lived and who died. So that was a huge surprise, as you can imagine, especially for the surgeons who decided that they wouldn't accept this trial um, because they said, well, okay, well, maybe that was what you found then, but, you know, those are our old, boring metal stents. We've got some new ones now that actually um, ooze out drugs. You know, they work much better. Again, they argued that their science had advanced. So, look, I think the example thing that this example shows is that you can do a good trial, but it can be an uphill battle to actually mm. get it accepted. And so the problems around randomised control trials aren't with the design of them themselves, but with the, the restriction, the regulations. It's going to be tougher on requiring them and on making sure people follow them. But, yeah, look, as I said, though, it works better on things like pharmaceutical drugs. Now, initially, most of the trials that were done were government-funded, but as the rules have gotten stricter, saying that you need to have a trial before you can put a drug on the market, and this especially, especially came out when the thalidomide fiasco, mm-hmm. pharmaceutical companies started getting in on it and doing their own research. Now, this has led to some interesting things. Um, it's meant to some, obviously, problems with people trying to rig the results, but again, tightening up regulations, making sure that all trials are registered beforehand, making sure no data goes missing. This is kind of working and resolving that. But there's been some newer problems emerging as well, some that I wasn't actually aware of. Now, one of these is an interesting one. This is, as this has kind of got a bigger industry, this whole kind of doing these trials, it's led to the rise of these organisations called contract research organisations. Now, these are when the pharmaceutical company themselves doesn't do the research, they pay pay someone else to do it. So you outsource it, essentially, to people who specialise in doing clinical trials. And, of course, these are being contractors. They're going to want to do it kind of as cheaply as possible. I'm not saying they're doing a bad thing here necessarily, but it is about cutting costs effectively. So you're going to have you, – you, they have their own in-house scientists, so they're not, say, people at teaching hospitals or that sort of thing necessarily. They're their own in-house um, scientists. They often themselves don't know too much about the stuff they're, they're researching. They're just basically somebody who's hired to run a trial. And they – uh, often will, say, conduct their, their trials in countries where it's cheaper to do the work. So this means you get things like um, you know, middle and low-income countries being used to test drugs that are going to be used in high-income countries. So, for instance, you may have patients being tested for cancer drugs um, and then other problems like malaria and tuberculosis, which are actually really affecting those regions, are going kind of neglected. It's kind of the, um, the globalisation of, of research in that sense, and it's... It can have some sort of, yeah. All sorts of ethical issues. Disturbing mm. ethical issues, I suppose. Yeah. But look, um, you know, what the ultimate solution is, I don't know, and we still need these these trials. Um, certainly it helps for governments to actually fund research themselves and not just rely on private companies because then you hopefully will get a bit more or of a less profit motive and a bit less exploitation of other countries. But as a whole, I guess it means that we need to look sure, make sure the world itself is kind of ben- benefiting Everyone is benefiting from the from medical science and not just uh, the wealthy who can afford to pay for it. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Probably not better known by its ICAC systematic name, which is uh, brackets 5-alpha, 6-alpha, 7-8-dihydro-4-5-epoxy-17 methyl morphinan 36 diol I don't know why that didn't take off. No, it's it's really, you know, it's easy to remember. I like the dihydro bit. Yeah, <laughs> it's good. Morphine is what okay. we're actually talking about. 
Uh, morphine is a commonly used opioid analgesic drug or a painkiller, and it's you know commonly found in hospitals all over the world. So mor- morphine was first isolated from opium poppies over 200 years ago. And although opium itself was long known for its narcotic properties, morphine is thought to be the first active ingredient isolated from a plant. So that happened in 1802. So oh. we've had morphine since 1802. So it's actually named for the Greek god of dreams, who was Morpheus. <laughs> so it was named, named for Morpheus due to the tendency to induce drowsiness and sleep when it's administered. Uh, and its primary legitimate application is for treatment of pain, as I said. So there's numerous side effects from chronic overuse of morphine, uh, which due to its addictive qualities can happen quite easily if it's not monitored. Uh, side effects include hormone imbalance mm. and hypogonadism or shrinkage of the gonads, which can result in weakened bones and osteoporosis. So often people who are addicted to morphine have very weak bones and prone to breakages. In the short term, it can cause constipation because it acts directly on the intestines uh, and actually makes the intestines absorb more water from the intestinal tract. So it dries out everything that's in there and stops peristalsis from taking place. So there's nothing pushing anything through. So it just Just banks up, turns into (laughs) solid concrete basically. And and it doesn't move, uh, it doesn't move along. Um, And there are also mixed conclusions regarding the effect of morphine on performance of mental and physical activities, although it seems like chronic users seem to be less affected than new or short-term users of morphine. So people who use morphine a lot are better at doing stuff while they're under the influence of morphine, whereas someone who's never had it before finds it very difficult to do stuff when they're under the influence of morphine. I would imagine that that most people would find it difficult to do a lot of usual things. So addiction is common, as I said, among non-medical users of morphine, but also in medical applications, patients can become tolerant to morphine and they require higher doses for the same reduction in pain over time. But recently, research studying the effect of morphine on rats was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which showed some other surprising results, which were probably unexpected. Rats were given simulated injuries by pinching nerves in their legs, and some of those rats were given a course of morphine, while a control group were given no morphine. Mm. So the control group recovered from their injuries in four to five weeks. They were completely recovered in four to five weeks. But surprisingly, the group that were administered morphine took about 10 to 11 weeks to fully recover Whoa, from their right. injuries. But they so, felt better about it on the way through, though, they, right? They, they, yeah, but they, yeah, they basically took twice as long to actually get full mobility back. They were and, like, um, what leg? <laughs> I've got weak bones anyway. Yes. It's fine. <laughs> their gonads all shrank. Tiny little boy. Um, <laughs> So the researchers uh, from the study concluded that in some way the morphine was increasing the levels of pain felt by the rats oh. or decreasing their tolerance to pain in some way. So, so hang on, they were sore, uh, more sore? They felt more pain, yeah. Okay. Because they had the morphine. So they it's focused... Kind of the opposite of the effect it's meant to have, isn't it? Well, they, it had an initial effect and then over time oh, it grew less. Oh, okay. So they, um, they only focused on male rats, and in future research they said they're going to focus on female rats on different types of pain and on different formulations of other opioid drugs to see if they have the same mm-hmm. effect. Um, and obviously whether this is directly applicable to human pain treatment is difficult to say. And also 
uh, quite tricky to test because withholding pain medication from human patients in pain would be pretty tricky to get ethical approval to run a trial along those lines, whereas uh, the rats don't have a good enough union to um, <laughs> to get just, them out of the, uh, just, the just, trials. Just give them some sham morphine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it does appear that initially morphine is very effective in treating pain, but the use of morphine becomes less effective once the body's immune system kicks in and it may actually directly increase the pain levels. So they also included a second test in the experiment where glial cells, which are part of the Mm. neurotransmitter system of the body, were chemically blocked, and that seemed to prevent the pain increase that the morphine was causing, but didn't necessarily stop the effect of the morphine on reducing pain. But it's a really complicated feedback system going on there, and they don't really understand quite what's going on Mm. by... um, by block, blocking the uh, the activity of the glial cells. So it looks like uh, at the moment, obviously, no one's going to stop using morphine. It's recommended by the World Health Organization as one of the fundamental building blocks of a, of a health system, if anyone's going to try and build a health system. It does raise concerns, though. I mean, if it's chances it's increasing pain rather than reducing pain, then you do need to get to the bottom of this sooner rather than later. You can't just say... Again, this goes to the point of clinical trials. You can't just say, oh, well, we think it works, so therefore we better keep using it. That, well, they're obviously going to do more experiments yeah, yeah. on it and try and figure out the connection between um, between the, the increase in pain and the decrease mm. in pain and how long is it effective for and all those sorts of things. Because um, what, one thing that they're hoping to be able to use it for is to help doctors predict which patients with which conditions might be better off okay, on, yeah. heroin, uh, on heroin, <laughs> on morphine... <laughs> And which are better off using some other pain management like heroin methods, like <laughs> heroin potentially. Well, this is the other problem that they've got to test all the opioid group as a whole because right. if they all do this, then they're all kind of going to end up in the same sort of basket as being mm. useful for some things and not useful for others. I think it's really going to be um, probably to do with how long they give patients. I think it's really. I, th- I think it's really amazing that we there's, we have known about morphine for what 200 years and we've been using it for so long and still there's so much that we don't know about it yeah well i guess the biochemistry of pain is still misunderstood Mm. i mean chronic pain is one of the massive problems of modern medicine is that we've kept all these people alive and stopped them dying of you know transmissible diseases and yet we've still got problems like chronic pain that we don't really understand how to how to focus and deal with them so hopefully if we look further into this stuff that will help with uh, management of chronic pain in the future and potentially without drugs, maybe. And that brings us to the end of another week of Lost in Science, which was also the radio debut for Nate. Congratulations, Nate. Thank you very much. I uh, Look, I, I think I've really earned this. It's been, it's been wonderful. It's been very, very real. And I'm just a bit disappointed that I didn't get any morphine to take home with me. <laughs> Mm, mm. Maybe next time. Maybe next time. <laughs> so you um, made a lovely debutante. Can we just say? Oh, thank you. you thank debut. you so yeah. much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and to honour your debut, would you like to take us out with some final words? I would. I would. And and thanks everybody for having me. This has been this has been real. So, <clears throat> Lost in Science is recorded at the Three CR Studios in Melbourne, and it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. 
That was excellent. Yeah, that Thanks. is fantastic. Um, if you want to, if you want to um, contact Nate, you can. Um, well, you can email us, and we'll pass it on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, Lostinsight at gmail dot com. What else? Or you can find us on Facebook. We are there. We are also on Twitter. Where you we can are. give us a prod, and we'll answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or maybe just tune in next week when we will once again get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.